that's gone from zero to a trillion dollars from scratch and then maybe beyond, you're not going to get there in a linear way. <laughs> so yeah. it's, I can't imagine any other way it would have gotten here, which is to say an extremely volatile and bubbly manner. Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit Aperture.co. Today, we are letting you listen in on our latest virtual salon, which is all about Bitcoin. Your host, Ben Robinson, and four excellent guests sit down to discuss questions like, should every investor have some exposure to Bitcoin or is it still too volatile? What's its intrinsic value anyway? And is Bitcoin a sustainable investment when it consumes more electricity than Argentina? Joining Ben in this discussion, we have Isabella Kaminska, FT Alphaville editor at the Financial Times, Preston Burns partner at Anderson Kill, Nick Carter, partner at Castle Island Ventures, and Seamus Donahue, VP of Sales and Business Development at Mateco. If you enjoy this conversation, make sure that you follow us on LinkedIn so you can find out when we are holding our next virtual salon and listen in live. Welcome, everybody, to this 4x4 virtual salon where we're going to be discussing whether Bitcoin is now an investable asset for every portfolio. Okay, so we're going to kick off with our first topic. What's the business case for Bitcoin? And I'm going to come to you first, Isabella. And I want to ask you, is Bitcoin the new gold? The new gold? Yes. I thought you said God for a second. Um, (laughs) Yeah. um, I don't know if it is the new gold. I mean, it has gold-like properties. But in terms of like the pure investment case, I see it in the spirit of this new phenomenon of ESG, which is about investing in stuff that is ideologically significant, not just, you know, investments that are going to like deliver a profit or an, or a return for uh, your clients or investors, but actually something that is, you know, impact investing in that sense, you know, where Prince Harry is now a chief impact uh, investor type. And the reason I say that is because, you know, it, there, there is also there comes an argument where Bitcoin becomes so big that you can't ignore it anymore. So if you're managing a portfolio, you are obliged to sort of have a fiduciary duty to maximize the returns aside from your ESG mandates, right? Now, so if you don't have an explicit ESG mandate, you also are inclined to uh, move into Bitcoin for those reasons. So I think there's a there's there's both of those aspects in play, and in that sense, you can maybe think of Bitcoin as a, for for the ESG side of things, it's a kind of divestment again, you know, a a divestment from fiat for those who don't believe in the ideological sort of controls that surround it and and the kind of um, political framework of of that system or one perhaps that is, you know, becoming unstuck by inflationary, you know, pressures, if you believe that sort of thing. And the other case is just simply portfolio management. The same way as we had the big commodities boom, so like six, so around 2014, 2015, we, would, we were having very similar debates about commodities, or even the VIX or something like that, is our commodities an, an asset class? And many people would have said, no, but it, it's not an asset class because it has no yield and pension funds have no business in owning commodities. 
But the interesting thing about Bitcoin is that you don't have to own derivatives to get exposure to Bitcoin. And so that, that whole physical conundrum goes out the window. And over time, you may even be able to synthesize yield through so-called rehypothecation or lending of that Bitcoin to the capital markets. So that's how I frame it at the moment. Nick, you've written about this a lot, but it seems an obvious follow-up question, which is, can Bitcoin be an ESG investment when it's so sort of environmentally damaging? There's plenty of uh, commodities that cost energy to extract and recycle and so on, and Bitcoin is no exception. So I don't really hear a lot of chatter about gold, ESG. Maybe that's just because I'm not listening to the right places. But you know, it seems to me that the ESG focus on Bitcoin is primarily driving from people that are trying to find critiques of Bitcoin or reasons why it should be banned or so on. But it's pretty selective focus generally. I don't hear that being applied to aluminum smelting or you know, yeah. idle devices that are sucking on electricity. It seems generally pretty selective with Bitcoin. But uh, yeah, certainly uh, I expect the government to use all the tools in their arsenal to suppress investment into Bitcoin uh, in the long term. And Clearly, capital is becoming extremely politicized through the mechanism of VSG and sort of mandates in terms of what you can invest in. So I'm sure that will be used against Bitcoin in the same way that gold ownership you know, was banned or restricted in you know, previous episodes where various governments had an incentive or were trying to stop people divesting from treasuries or from the local sovereign currency. Certainly, I expect governments to use all the tools at their disposal and uh, ESG looks like a pretty convenient one. Seamus, this is a question for you, which is in- inherent to this idea that Bitcoin is the new gold, is the idea that Bitcoin is, is, is finite, right? So I think something like 21 million Bitcoins can ever be mined. But the, the, the counter argument that a lot of people use is that it's not finite because, it's, because you, know, you can have 0.0000 Bitcoins and so on. So what's the response to people that say it's not finite because it's infinitely divisible. It, it makes me laugh because it's kind of a clueless, clueless sort of a statement. I mean, it's a very specious argument. I mean, you're saying it's divisible. You're not saying the total amount changes. So Bitcoin, indeed, you know, it has eight decimals right now. The smallest units is SAT, SAT, you know, SAT, which is 100 million SATs makes a Bitcoin. So yeah, it's it's great. I think a USP, you know, when you think about, you know, money, one of the USPs is basically that it should be divisible. And indeed, Bitcoin is. And people can look at it and say, well, it's very expensive, around 50,000, but that's not the unit you necessarily need to buy and you can buy in a set. So, but the total amount is still 21 million. And I think it's one of the only assets that's provably finite. I mean, we've been talked a little bit about gold and gold's relatively finite at a certain price level, but as the price goes up, more becomes economically viable to dig out of the ground. And that previously was store wealth. And that was a big attribute that the gold supply only grows a couple percent a year because unless the price goes higher, nobody really invests to mine more and it's not necessarily economically viable. Now you have this new, let's say gold 2.0, and it is specifically limited at a total amount of 21 million. So it is unquestionably finite, no matter how much, how, how, no matter how, how divisible that amount is. And then, Preston, I wanted to ask you a question because the time that people started to talk about Bitcoin as the new gold, or as Seamus said, gold 2.0, that was about the same time as people realized that it wasn't a very good payment mechanism, right? So, my, my question to you is to what extent do you think? Bitcoin is the new gold is kind of, you know, a convenient, you know, post-rationalization of the fact that Bitcoin's not a brilliant sort of global currency or 
or, or, or payment mechanism. And Bitcoin, Bitcoin uh, isn't really amenable to, to easy description, right? People have described it as different things, but Bitcoin isn't, you know, Bitcoin isn't sentient and it wasn't created for a particular purpose and it really has a life of its own. So that's the first part of that. I think the second is that it's a technology and as such, technologies change and evolve. And we're seeing that with Bitcoin, in particular with scaling solutions such as Layer 2 and the Lightning Network, So, which is, a, which is basically an off-chain solution that ties into the chain but allows people to send large numbers of transactions without uh, leaving a large transactional footprint on the blockchain itself. So I, I would expect, and you know, this is relevant, I think, for investors who are, who are investing into this space, you know, are they investing into the potential future where money is no longer... Uh, in the hands of the state and, and, and is instead fully automated and digital and, and, and based on distributed consensus? Or are they investing because they think Bitcoin is the one true money that is going to deliver all those solutions? I mean, Bitcoin is certainly a contender for that. But I think that as a technology, we have to look at it and understand that this is, we're still in the first or second ending of the game here, you know, given the fact that it's so experimental and, you know, it's so uh, lightly used in terms of percentage of the population. So, so it's very early days. And then maybe one for you, Nick. Why would Bitcoin suddenly become a substitute for gold if it doesn't behave anything like gold? So, i.e., you know, you would expect gold to be, you know, I guess countercyclical, right? Whereas, whereas Bitcoin hasn't behaved like that. Well, there's the properties of the asset, and then there's the financial performance, and those are pretty distinct. So, the reason people compare Bitcoin to gold is because of its inherent properties. It has some monetary hardness. In fact, it's much harder than gold. Gold has a supply reaction when the price of gold goes up or down. You know, And so you actually have a countercyclical effect there in terms of the, the reaction function. Uh, Bitcoin, of course, has this defined supply schedule, and so it doesn't really react or there's no alteration to the schedule in response to demand shocks. The other thing, you know, the people tend to use Bitcoin as this sort of pristine collateral asset. A lot of people imagine that Bitcoin will eventually be used as this sort of high-powered collateral uh, within a banking system. We'll see if that materializes or not. It's sort of reminiscent of the way gold used to be used with you know, banks issuing notes against gold and things like that. Of course, Bitcoin is about 5,000 years younger than gold as sort of a monetary commodity. So we're still sort of figuring out what it is. And that uncertainty is expressed in volatility. So it's naturally much more volatile than gold. You know, young, newly monetizing synthetic monetary commodity that's gone from zero to a trillion dollars from scratch and then maybe beyond, you're not going to get there in a linear way. <laughs> so yeah. it's, I can't imagine any other way it would have gotten here, which is to say an extremely volatile and bubbly manner. The point you made there about gold adapting on the supply side, how is that not also true for Bitcoin? Because as the price of Bitcoin rises, there, there is more value to be made from mining, right? Yeah, but the miners can't accelerate the rate of production. So that's, okay, got it. that's sort of the magic of Bitcoin. That's the thing that it does that's different. It's perfectly inelastic in terms of uh, supply. Two more questions to Bitty. The first one is um, Isabella. I'm going to give you, um, you wrote here that ESG is more than just environment, right? So how, how, does, how does Bitcoin score on social and corporate governance? I think that's the issue, isn't it? ESG is fairly subjective and that's why it's quite controversial. Not many people agree on all this stuff. So you have 
you have very loose ideas about what qualifies as a green bond or as a green investment. That's why, really, it's it's a competing system of values. And Bitcoin just is another ideologically minded movement out there that is saying that, you know, we want to encourage investment into a system that is going to protect privacy, that is going to keep people to account because we're going to take out the middlemen. It's, it's, it's basically another ideological offering on the table. And that does make it an ESG investment because the metrics that, you know, that, that, that you're, you're judging about are not just about whether investing in Bitcoin is purely profitable. There are other societal impacts like, okay, great, you make loads of money, but is it worth it if you're living in an authoritarian nightmare sort of thing? That's why I frame it in that sense, because I, I, think, <laughs> I think the environmental question it always just, you know, it, it's a worthwhile question. Obviously, it has a huge footprint, but the real value proposition to the capital markets isn't so much about whether it's a new gold or whether it's, you know, a payment system. It's about anchoring, um, creating a level playing field for for value because that's really what we've been lacking. One of the reasons gold doesn't work is because it's bulky and, you know, you have to own it, physically store it. There is all sorts of shenanigans that can go on in terms of warehousing it. You know, there's many, many storage facilities that have turned out to have, like, not you know not gold you just have to watch goldfinger as well um but with with bitcoin or any other digital asset of its of its kind the opportunity on the table is to anchor all the sort of competing value systems into a single thing that that nobody can like manipulate so i'm not really focused my concern isn't like you know whether domestic systems should be centralized or not. I think within homogenous societies, it's okay to have trusted systems that are quite centralized for efficiency purposes because we live in a, we have that embedded trust in that society. We have, we share certain norms and and, uh, legislation and culture. But it's about operating on a global um, marketplace where you don't have those similar norms and you have, like, say, the Chinese central bank continuously devaluing the currency on a unilateral basis and then you end up with currency wars and all that stuff. Bitcoin regulates that and it allows for, a, you know, a hun- lots of different competing systems, some of which can be centralised, some of them might not be centralised, to compete against each other. And in the end, the best one, you know, we will know from the free market, so to speak, which one will benefit, uh, will, will win out. But it, it's not necessarily the case that it will be a crypto one, but it, it's the I'm interested in the collateral proposition of how it anchors everything together. Preston, is Bitcoin compatible with, with central bank digital currencies? And is it a matter of time before central banks try to scupper Bitcoin in favor of, of their own CBDCs? So going to go to you first, Preston, if that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's not really a question of compatibility. It's that Bitcoin in most countries uh, isn't illegal. And so people are entitled to use it. And if central banks want to have their own digital currencies, which run on their own databases, where, you know, they're backed, you know, I mean, most fiat currencies, fiat inverted commas, really specie or just, you know, state-backed money is backed by the fact that people have to use it to pay taxes. So that that is why, that is the primary demand for fiat currency in most jurisdictions. So there's not really any essential conflict between Bitcoin and, and something like that. And that Bitcoin is, you know, at least you know, ostensibly subject, uh, even if enforcement is difficult, it's ostensibly subject to the tax regimes of uh, the countries in which its holders and people who transact in it uh, reside and transact. So there's no essential conflict there. Bitcoin's just any other 
just like any other financial asset, you can account for your gains and your losses. Uh, and then at the end of the year, you got to tally it all up and you, you'll have a big bill for the revenue that you got to pay. So I, I don't see any conflict there. Of course, it, it might, the central banks might decide that it presents so much of a challenge to their authority of the money that, that they'll ban it. But we haven't seen any moves like that, at least in the Western world. Not yet. And what do you think the likelihood of that is happening? So anybody can answer that. So, I think there's a massive mis- uh, misconception about about the legality of of money and and whether or not a, a government can force you to use their money. The, the answer is they can't. And certainly here in the UK, you know, there is no you know there is no legal tender per se. It's all opt in. But it just so happens that we we do opt into it because it's useful and uh, it's nice to use something that everyone has a common interest in. But there is no. I don't know about other jurisdictions, but it's certainly here in the UK, it is. It is not legal tender in the, in the sense that the, the the government forces you to use. It. You can use any currency you want. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I mean, the government can encourage you to use a certain you know monetary medium, and the dollar has certain privileges in the U.S. Like if the value of the dollar appreciates, you don't have to pay capital gains on that. You know, treasuries are sold for dollars, and you need dollars to kind of participate in our securities markets and things like that. And taxes, you sort of have to, you know, suppress those liabilities in dollars. So they can encourage its usage, but that, you know, you're not going to mandate that someone completes a transaction in dollars to the point of a gun. Money is just the most saleable commodity. Clearly, Bitcoin has carved out a niche in its own kind of jurisdiction, which is initially the crypto landscapes, the sort of digital realm roughly 100 million people worldwide. I just think of that as its own separate jurisdiction where Bitcoin is effectively the, the reserve currency. It's not really the, the effectively the reserve currency, right? Because the, the way that governments discourage people from using Bitcoin is, is twofold, right? And it's mostly actually through the tax code. And way one is that Bitcoin, when received in exchange for goods and services, is taxed as income. And then you have a second tax hit when you dispose of it or a loss, depending on, on, on what happens. But assuming the direction is going to the moon and you dispose of it at a profit, you have another tax hit on your capital gains, which would be short term in one year and long term, it's longer than a year. So Bitcoin is not really a great money because as you use, the more you use it, the more complicated your tax affairs become. And so I suspect we'll probably see aggressive tax enforcement being the mode through which governments discourage its use if they decide it's a threat rather than an outright ban. And I would just make one anecdotal comment on that with regard to Switzerland. So Switzerland's interesting because the you know, obviously you have the Swiss national government and you have cantonal governments. And there's obviously a big community in places like uh, Zug, the Crypto Valley. And actually, the, the state government there allows you to pay your taxes in crypto now. And I think uh, to Preston's point around capital gains, fortunately, Switzerland's also a country where you don't have capital gains. So it it could could work here. Uh, so that's, I think, just an interesting point, point from the Swiss perspective. In the same way, as Seamus notes, in the same way as tax policy can be used to sort of attempt to suppress Bitcoin or crypto usage, it can also be used to encourage it. And we've seen a number of countries adopting pretty favorable tax yeah. approaches to crypto in the same way that you know behavior at the state level is heterogeneous. And uh, there's no single international order, certainly not one that the US controls, not anymore. And uh, I think you'll just see a diverse set of reactions to crypto. Some central banks will adopt Bitcoin in their foreign exchange reserves the same way they adopt gold. And you know, if you look at gold, that's something that's ostensibly hostile to you know, 
monetary discretion in a bunch of countries because gold isn't something that you can inflate at will. And yet it has been adopted in foreign exchange reserves. Many central banks hold gold. So I don't see why it would be any different for a novel monetary commodity. It's funny, the Swiss National Bank, although they don't explicitly own Bitcoin, they have holdings in MicroStrategy, Square, and Tesla. So <laughs> indirectly, they're there. And so, the, Sing- the Singaporean oh, well, I, I would just, fund. With respect to central bank reserves, what's interesting is that if and when like big corporations, MicroStrategy, Tesla, the investment managers, the private sector basically does accumulate a lot of Bitcoin, then the only way um, they can influence the market is through a, not by actually owning Bitcoin, but by managing the shorts, because there has to be a a relative short um, to offset the longs in the private sector. So you might actually see them selling, aka borrowing Bitcoin from the private sector and selling it into the market, much like they do in gold. Like if you actually believe in the conspiracies from, you know, about gold shorting, there's a, there's a, there's a purposeful reason for that, which is that there is a um, interest rate curve that encourages the fiat monopolists to effectively short the stuff to offset the longs. I wanted to move us on to the second topic, just, uh, which is the question of whether we're in a bubble. So, Nick, I'm going to come to you first, because 71% of the people that are filled in the poll think that Bitcoin will be worth $100,000 by the end of 2021. And my question is, how would one determine what's a fair price for Bitcoin? Is it, is it the mining cost that should give us some, the best proxy for the underlying value? What's, what's, how does one determine the value of Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, it's like any other commodity. You can't construct a valuation with a DCF model. Right, okay. Right? <laughs> so, and and we see these like Wall Street sell-side desks like frantically trying to build a valuation. Like JPM, the commodities desk, always does this. With the mining costs, and it doesn't make any sense because miners react to the price. They don't set the price. Miners don't have any like privileged information about where Bitcoin is going to go. There's nothing special about being a miner. So they're not valuing Bitcoin for us. And then we're sort of inferring their valuation and then you know, trying to guide price to the valuation they've set. Miner behavior is just a function of hash rate, electricity costs, ASIC costs, really, and market prices. So hash rate is laggy. You know, It kind of follows price, basically. So if, I mean, if you look at uh, the 2017 bubble, there was a huge hash rate spike sort of 12 months after that. So, you know, minor behavior follows price. So miners don't set the price of Bitcoin at all. Price of Bitcoin is just, you know, a function of the supply, which is completely known. And then, you know, the, the world's appetite for Bitcoin and sort of the world's expectations of the future adoption cycle of Bitcoin, which are constantly being revalued. You know, those probabilities are changing all the time. The sort of optimism is changing constantly. And so you get these this unbelievable volatility. I think it's just about assessing where you think the world's ultimate appetite for Bitcoin is going to settle in the long term. You know, right now it's roughly you know ten percent of gold, actually slightly below that if you account for sort of the free float of Bitcoin. Do you, I think Bitcoin is going to be more influential uh, than gold in the future? Yeah, I certainly do. Do I know when that's going to happen? Absolutely not. Seamus, I'm going to come to you next. So, so. Bitcoin is up 600% in the last 12 months. And listening to Nick, it's, it's simply a function of demand and supply, right? And the, the supply is, is relatively fixed or largely fixed. 
And so it's the demand that's changing. The question is, how much of that demand do you think is speculative? And you know, is there a possibility, as 25% of the people that filled in the poll suggest, that this is a repeat of 2007 and we're in you know, a really big speculative bubble? What, what, what do you say to that? Just a repeat of 2017, 18, you mean? Or? Yes, yes, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's clearly signs that there's speculative frost in the market. I mean, just uh, this week, I think we had you know, one of the crypto exchanges buying naming rights from the Miami Heat to put their name on, you know, over $100 million to put their, their company name on, on the stadium. We've got, you know, look, look at crypto Twitter and people are talking about their Lambos and, uh, and, and their Aston Martins again. So there is a lot of spec, speculative euphoria in the market. But I think you need to look beyond um, just Bitcoin. I mean, we see this broadly across many assets now, whether it's, you know, equities, um, real estate, just about everything seems to be you know, profoundly exhibiting the same sort of same sort of frothiness or, or bubble bubble characteristics. And I, and I think the whole issue is really how we measure these things, right? It's really what's the denominator? What are we re- measuring this against? And I think the real question is why are all these assets in that case? And I think it's really a lot of this can be correlated back to what we've seen in the growth in central bank balance sheets. You know, since the global credit crisis in you know 2007 to 2009, we've seen central banks absolutely explode their balance sheets. They've gone from somewhere around 5 trillion. If you look at the major central banks, the Fed, ECB, BOJ, and PBOC, it's gone from about 5 trillion to almost 30 trillion in February this year. And from 20, that last 10 trillion or it had a 50% jump basically in, in 2020, since 2020. So we've really seen a huge growth from these extraordinary sort of monetary policy reactions we've had from central banks. I think it, what we've seen is reaction asset markets. All asset markets are probably to some degree in a bubble denominated dollars. So I, I think the answer is yes. Now, where we go from here is I think it's very different than 2017, 2018, where you had a kind of asset specific spike. It was all retail. It's kind of yep. a natural sort of stage of we see hype cycle around new technologies. We saw that on the internet. You had a huge run up in you know, 19, 1998 to 2000, and then it crashed. And we've come out of that in kind of much more sustainable sort of trend in technology. And I think crypto is the same thing. We had a huge bubble and retail driven bubble that was on, you know, a lot of hype and little substance in, in 2017, 18, crashed. And now we've had all the institutional sort of build out of infrastructure, the on ramps, the large you know, adoption by the financial um, incumbents. And I think we see a long-term, solid, a structural, sustainable trajectory now for crypto. Yeah, will it have up and downs? Yes. Will it have blow-off tops? Yes. But I think it's very different than 2017, 2018. I got to disagree with you there. And normally, I'm, I'm skeptical about this sort of stuff. So, so this, I'm not saying, as Nick and anyone in crypto who knows me for the last couple of years uh, will know. I mean, if you look at, at the trajectory of Bitcoin and crypto adoption versus other types of software and technology adoption in the past, it's abundantly clear that Bitcoin is still only in the very, very beginning uh, of the adoption curve and hasn't even hit its inflection point. Yeah, there are a lot of holders who, are, who have, coin, have Bitcoin balances on Coinbase, right? But at the same token, there are only 11,000 nodes. So this, if this does what other software is, you know, usually does, by the time they get some usability improvements in and they get things like Layer 2 working well and actually you know, a decent UX. The potential for this technology is just like stratospheric. We're talking 10,000 nodes now, it could easily 100x or 1,000x from there without, without really breaking a sweat. And at that point, Bitcoin would be a very, very uh, serious technology indeed, which just couldn't be ignored. But like that, that's, we're still at that very nascent and early phase where everyone recognizes that we have a very powerful tech on our hands, but it still hasn't been made usable enough 
for ordinary people to use it. And that's certainly coming. So Preston, just, just to um, dig into that a bit more. So you, are you saying that it's potentially still undervalued because it's still got so much potential? Or are you saying that it's potentially overvalued because people have got too excited versus where it really is at at the moment on the maturity curve? It's dramatically undervalued. If we think about how many Facebook users there are or how many web servers there are, I think is actually, or email servers there are, that might be a better uh, number to understand how big the cryptocurrency space is going to get. And at the moment, if we look at most of the big cryptocurrencies, the number of nodes, full nodes, right? So that's the people who have a complete uh, copy of the blockchain on a computer or a server and are actively relaying transactions as part of the network. Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are the two biggest ones with about, I think Ethereum is eight or 9,000 and Bitcoin has 10,000. So if we 1,000x that, it would mean that Bitcoin had 10 million instances, you know, being run or, or, you know, active software users all over the world. Facebook has 2 billion. So if we're, if we think that this is going to be something like Facebook or on the level of Facebook, it is, it might in the short term be overvalued. It might retrace. It might have, you know, it might have you know, dramatic, you know, 50% drop in the next couple of months. But I, I'm now fairly convinced uh, that, that the, the way that this is going is going to look a lot more like Facebook. The adoption of Facebook and email, and uh, and just looking at how many people are actually running the software, it's clear that that hasn't happened yet. But the, there are people with tons of Bitcoin balances, right? So they are no, nominally Bitcoin users, but they're not maximizing their Bitcoin use in the way that I think small businesses and others will be able to do it in a way that would be potentially capable of bumping off the big payment processors like Visa and Mastercard. And the reason they're not there is because the tech isn't there. But it's going to get there because that's what technology does. I'll just interject. I totally agree with you. Hopefully, I didn't come across the other saying this is over. I think this is very early days and it's going exactly. I very much agree with your thesis. Isabel, I wanted to come to you next because I wanted to ask about... So we've, we've already alluded to this, right? The um, microstrategy and Tesla putting so much of their kind of treasury cash, surplus treasury cash into, into Bitcoin. Based on the discussion we just had, that would seem to be a really logical move, right? Because you're taking potentially, you know, you're, these companies are generating lots of cash and, you know, they're able to raise lots of cash. And then they're then putting that into, into an asset that should, based on everything we've said, be a, a, be a pretty good inflation hedge, right? If we believe that the inflation is coming down the road. Where do you, where do you stand on the, the sort of logic of, of MicroStrategy and Tesla and others starting to, to use Bitcoin as a treasury asset? You know, I am quite cynical, generally speaking, but, you know, Tesla has cash flow issues of its own, like in terms of just conventional fiat flows. For Elon, there are other there are other sort of incentives in, in like messing with people's heads and, and sort of divesting into Bitcoin, notably because it probably will confuse a load of analysts and, and they won't really understand the cash reserve sort of position of, of, of Tesla. And that that obfuscates some of the numbers and potentially it could it could have like a cash flow impact in that sense. But and he's now obviously also said that he will be selling Teslas for Bitcoin. It, it will have to retrain a lot of bank analysts and valuation type people in, in how they assess. Um, I mean, you could just conceivably use it as any FX. You know, obviously co- corporations have FX exposure across the entire world, but they are valued in their home currency. So um I'm 
cynical, but at the same time, there is some underlying logic if you think that Bitcoin is going to become a an international asset um, that is going to be increasingly a stable form of a stable source of value on the reserve books. I mean, hard to say. For microstrategies, from what I understand, there was also this weird play where they're a listed stock and you can, you know, the other incentive for putting uh, your treasury cash into Bitcoin is that you then galvanize people to buy your stock because you're a proxy for owning Bitcoin. So in terms of like people, whatever, there are lots of different investment strategies out there, different mandates. You might not be able to own Bitcoin outright, but if you buy micro strategies, you're kind of getting an exposure to Bitcoin. So it it expands the pool of potential investors for your own stock. So there are other sort of factors at play, you know, whether it becomes a trend, there was a big rumor that Oracle were going to do it as well. That didn't materialize. I think it's early days. Um, you've got to imagine like, you know, the treasury positions of the big, huge corporations like Google. Google's got such a massive cash reserve uh, position that they have active traders, like, you know, putting it into treasuries or cash cash equivalents is almost a missed opportunity. These, these big sort of mega corporates have to actively manage those portfolios and manage the risk around them. So they're also kind of operating like mini hedge funds um, in some ways on the on an internal basis. And maybe that's another incentive to, you know, if, if you can make a nice return from, from speculative position in Bitcoin, it can bolster your, your P&L in other ways. Nick, what would happen to the price of Bitcoin when you have quite a lot of CBDCs in circulation? Do you think that potentially has a um, you know a downward effect on the price of Bitcoin? I think people get hung up on the digital currency part of CBDCs. I mean, if you look at it, actually, most dollars are digital. The vast majority of dollars are digital. They're not analog. So we already have CBDCs. I don't, like I don't want to be pedantic, but I mean, yeah, you know. No, I, I totally agree with that. It really frustrates me when people kind of market as a big innovation sorry to creep into yeah. your, your point no i i and so it is odd i mean i guess you know maybe cbdc involves giving regular people accounts at the fed i don't think that's going to happen so maybe we're going to have some sort of hybrid model and then the question is okay well how is that different from our current model at all so maybe you know fintechs will get accounts with the central bank directly instead of just banks okay doesn't seem like a huge change to me at the end of the day it is a, sorry to interject. It is a big yeah. change. I just don't think they're going to do it if they really think about it. Because what CBDCs actually mark is a it's a euphemism for state banking. And you know, conventionally, we we don't think state banking is a good idea. State banking, to the extent that central banks are still under the supervisory mandate of a state, they're supposed to be independent, of course. But but either way, it's either state banking or monopolistic banking. And that is not um, supposed to be a good thing. And the reason that becomes the case is because if everyone can just hold uh, accounts at the central bank, that will defund all the kind of respective banking competition out the conventional licensed banks, um, who will be starved of deposits and will have 
potentially a massive liquidity issue to the point that the central bank will instead um, attract all those deposits and be forced to reinvest them um, in assets. So people only think of the liability side of the balance sheet, but it's really important to remember that if everyone puts their money into the central bank, they're going to have to do something with that money. And, and they'll. And do you really want the central bank to be deciding who to give loans to? Isn't it better to have a distributed competing network? That's That's my key point. Well, point very much taken on that. Just to sort of maybe get to the intuition behind the question, I think people ask it because they think that CBDC will give you this maybe great transactional experience uh, such that you don't need cryptocurrency. But as far as I can tell, it's giving you a very different experience from Bitcoin or stable coins, even, even for that matter, which is, you know, if you look at the Chinese style CBDC, the DCEP, yeah, it includes a whole bunch of surveillance, uh, and you don't get a lot of transactional freedom or autonomy with that. And you know, I I haven't really seen a central bank commit to creating you know strong privacy assurances in their digital cash products if they are able to create them. Well, there's a, there's a massive the conflict. They're faced with a massive conflict because they're the the person might have a, a view on this. Actually, they are charged with you know ensuring all their licensed operators comply with AML and KYC. So if they then issue digital currency themselves and don't apply the same criteria to their own accounts that they force on all the other banks, well, that's a bit of a paradox. And so there's a massive paradox at the heart of private central bank money. I I don't see how they can overcome it personally, unless they totally, you know, abandon KYC and AML rules or have an exception for themselves. But then why would you use their currency? And they're not going to. I mean, what government, you know, creates a tool that could potentially increase their power and then walks away from that additional capability. So, you know, people like Bitcoin because it lets you opt out of the discretion involved in central banking. It gives you more transactional autonomy, freedom, etc. A CBDC is growing the power of government and the central bank as far as I can tell if they if they do create them. So, to me, they seem like completely diametrically opposed concepts. And people get confused because they well, they think, oh, Bitcoin's digital currency and CBDC has digital currency in the names so for their competitive products. I, I don't really see them as giving you the same assurances at all. I'm going to move us on now to topic three, because we, we, we need to discuss this central point of whether we think Bitcoin is now you know, an investable asset for every portfolio. And so our, our audience is pretty clear on this, right? 88% of them think that a small allocation of Bitcoin in every portfolio makes sense. But I'm going to come to you, Seamus, and ask whether it's, you know, it's really suitable for, say, risk-averse pension funds, given its, given its volatility. What, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think the, you know, the, the investment market is really a broad spectrum of different sort of, as you say, risk profiles, right? We've had some of the first adopters, like the, um, the, 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 hedge, the hedge funds, Paul Tudor Jones and these type of guys get in the market, and they have a strong thesis around that. They're very agile. You know, they have a central sort of process around decision-making, right? Whereas you look in the pension space, you know they have, they have advisors, they've got committees, processes take a long time to change um, risk risk and allocations, and you know Bitcoin takes a while to get into there. And I think one of the biggest impediments to Bitcoin is obviously the size of the market. Until recently, it was very small. I mean, you described the, the returns we saw. I mean, we're looking at a couple hundred million dollar asset class just last year, um, and that's something that should definitely be ignored. Now it gets quite a bit different at, at a trillion dollars and and rising. I, I mean, I think. 
otherwise the size itself is not probably enough but i think you know the, the, uh, what i was referring to before the extreme sort of monetary policy was had from central banks its intent is to drive investors at the risk curve and i think um to a large degree the the measure of we have in the market is broken you know you have negative yields you've really broken the cost of money and now you had central bank you had pension funds I guess 2012 was a good example. You had some of the, let's say, Texas teachers and some of the other Texas pension funds investing in physical gold in their response to kind of post um, post the, the credit crisis and the monetary policy reaction we saw from that. And they said the way to opt out, as Nick referenced in Bitcoin space, was to actually take physical delivery of gold. And that obviously took a few years for them to go from the global credit crisis to the doing that. And I think you, similar, you probably have a similar sort of lag here, but I think it's the growth trajectory of asset classes getting to the point where it can be considered. And I know I've had some dialogues with those type of organizations that they are looking at it. I'd say it's very early. I mean, people at Grayscale say pensions are looking at it. I think it's probably a very small pension so far. But I think if this continues and uh, we continue to have, I mean, globally, I think about um, as of February, 27% of fixed income was still negative yielding. Uh, fixed income no longer serves its purpose, basically. And I think it's, uh, you know, you're looking at very sort of long duration. Uh, risks as rates go up, basically, and, and crypto's potentially or Bitcoin's potentially an alternative as well in a portfolio. Now, obviously, the question is how much, but I think the, those discussions looking at that asset class from the most conservative investors is starting now. I don't know if anybody wants to, to volunteer an answer to that about what might be a sensible allocation, because you know, if it, based on what you said and based based on the performance and so on, it, it does feeling you know, and leaving aside the volatility, it, it does seem like it's sensible to have some exposure to this um, because it's such a high performing asset class. And you know, Preston thinks it's super super in its infancy still. And uh, you know, why, why would you not allocate something to it? You know, say two percent, Preston. Uh, why would you? Why would you not? Oh, sorry, Nick, I didn't realize. Yeah, you. I mean, no, I mean, sorry to to. <laughs> to cut in line. I mean, if you think current expectations of the future growth of Bitcoin are already expressed in the price, you know, and so there have definitely been bad times to buy Bitcoin historically. Could be that we're in one right now. So, so you, you, would, you would simply say timing? Yeah, it's a matter of determining where you are in the, in the mini cycle. And then obviously we have a much longer term sort of secular movement towards monetizing this asset class. But if you, you know, if you have a constraint in your portfolio, your mandate, and you can't tolerate the volatility, you know, then you really have to manage your position size accordingly. But, but, but wouldn't that just be reflected in the size of the position in the same way that people say don't ever try to time equities? But if, you, if you're very risk averse, you have a very small allocation to equities. I guess the question is the risk of getting washed out of your position if, if you can't deal with the downside volatility. And I think if you don't have a really firm understanding of Bitcoin and a conviction in the asset, that's probably guaranteed to happen because we're dealing with something that's sort of 80 to 100% annual volatility. Isabella Preston, do you, do, you have, do you have a view on that? Because we're facing this sort of pension time bomb, right? And you know, because we're sitting on a population pyramid that doesn't support pensions pension funds are not yielding what they should be what they need to be like you know make the case for not making a say one or two percent allocation of, of pension funds to, to bitcoin other other than the timing i don't think there is i, don't, I mean one or two percent i would maybe go on if you're really hyper cautious then go on the low side half a percent quarter of a percent i don't know but i think ignoring the asset class at this point is a mistake. I think what would what would be a greater mistake in in and what clearly some people are starting to do is they look at coin market cap and they see what the top ten are and there's some new flavor of the week that 
you know, bolted up to the top because it's the new, yeah. you know, the new thing. But then when you sort of dust it off and it's like, okay, well, what is it? But, but it's just some other, you know, you know repackaging of, of basically Ripple, you know, by another company with another entrepreneur. Uh, there are very few things in the crypto space which are capable of rendering uh, the current way of doing things, which is proof of work in the, in the, Bitcoin, in the style of Bitcoin, obsolete as a superior mode of reaching decentralized or distributed consensus on transactions on a block-by-block basis. So I think a lot of people will wind up making the mistake saying, oh, well, look, there's this one. It's like green and you know, it's proof of stake. Of course, there are big problems with that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that people basically, the biggest mistake they would make is by putting too many eggs in one basket. If they're really interested, I think, wait heavily. And this is not investment advice. I'm an attorney, but I'm one of them <laughs> for a really long time. And so I've seen what's worked and what hasn't. And you know, there's always some flavor of the week that that doesn't stick around very long because it's just you know, been pumped up by some you know, some I don't know some algo trader with a large position. Uh, and most people who are new to this space don't don't know when they don't they don't recognize when it's happening. So it's yeah. I was just going to say, I think it's really important to remember that a lot of things that happen in capital markets are born out of convention and from organic sort of adoption you know there are there are obviously regulators saying you have to do this and that but there's many different sort of investing norms that have been born out of just you know first mover advantage and the qwerty keyboard issue like LIBOR was very much just an industry thing that came about it wasn't perfect um, as we later found out but um, it, it became you know a trillion dollar benchmarking system uh, or more and um, I think Bitcoin has massive, you know, the fact that it was the first first one to the market in this in this space gives it a huge advantage over anything else. And and that mustn't be overlooked uh, because it's really hard to wean the market off a convention that has been organically sprung upon them. And you can also look at, you know, other concepts like credit rating agencies. They again, like this, theoretically, there's no uh, bound, there's no limit to how many people can give a, a stock or a security and a rating. I mean, I could start Isabella Kaminska ratings tomorrow, but no one would listen to me because of the power and the influence of the primary, um, the, the first movers into that market. And, and I, I, I just think that's a, an important point to to also consider. I'm going to read to you a short, very, very short quote, which I think was from last month, as recently as last month from uh, Janet Yellen, where she said, cryptocurrencies are used, at least in the transaction sense, mainly for illicit financing. Is that even true anymore? If it's not true, why do you think that she said it? Is it does it come back to that point we've made earlier on where a lot of, sort of central banks and government bodies are still quite uncomfortable with them? With, um, with cryptocurrencies, or, or or is it still just this kind of legacy image that is still used by criminals? So I don't know if anybody who wants to comment on that first. I'll do that. No, it's because boomers don't understand what they're doing in, in this space. This is not this is not their tactic. <laughs> um, no offense, but that's the fact is that what we're seeing we're we're seeing Bitcoin being yes, it is used for illicit purposes without a doubt. Um, but law enforcement has absolutely top-notch surveillance capabilities because Bitcoin is unencrypted, right? The transaction history is publicly viewable for anyone to see. So if you commit a big enough crime with Bitcoin, uh, you're going to be on the radar and getting those coins out. We, we will see, actually, we see wire fraud prosecutions and money laundering prosecutions being brought years after the fact because someone who uh, took some funds in Bitcoin 
related to illicit transactions, then decides that it's been enough time, so they then go and spend it to Coinbase, withdraw it, and uh, and try to get the money out. And you know, boom, FBI looks at it, goes and serves Coinbase with a subpoena, finds out who uh, who effectuated the transaction. They're they're all over it like white on rice. Um, but, but don't you think that's like not a feature? I, I find that like if if you're like interested in privacy, isn't that like one of the problems? In that it is so transparent, and actually, isn't the issue also that like Bitcoin has now become so regulated? There's almost no differentiation from the core core fiat markets with it, and and all the advantages you used to have have gone out the window. And in that case, what really is the advantage of me using Bitcoin over PayPal? I don't. Like in the marketplace, I don't see what the what the advantage is, especially given there are some user user non friendly issues with Bitcoin versus PayPal. Um, yeah, so the yeah, the great is a great point, um, and I think the answer is uh, that what we're seeing increasingly in, in you know, American society, at least, is businesses affecting censorship on behalf of pressure groups. That are unable to do it because you know through the government because the constitution stands in their way. Uh, most spectacularly, we saw that with the uh, really extraordinary deplatforming of a sitting president from virtually the entire internet on January sixth. You know, in relation to the events where, where a group of individuals decided to trespass at the Capitol, and uh, and he was he was assigned blame for that and was deplatformed essentially from the entire internet. We've also seen that with. Large numbers of conservatives being deplatformed from the internet. They're also being deplatformed from banks and payment processors. And Bitcoin, for a lot of these people, has operated as a real lifeline in order for them to you know, get in communication with their supporters and receive funds from their supporters and continue operating when the banks really have been hijacked by a partisan, uh, hard left political agenda, or at least you know the hardest left person and with the bluest uh, hair dye in their risk department uh, is calling the shots for the entire organization. So that that's the kind of universe that we're moving towards. And Bitcoin's ordinary utility, you know, if you want to be a political dissident and spend money to someone who's controversial, you're still free to do that in our society. And people are doing it, right? They're saying, listen, we're going to- go are you? Are you free? Because like, qu- qu- quite frankly, you know, if, if you make donations to some terrorist group, theoretically, um, it'll be tracked on the blockchain and you will be arrested. Yeah, but like you're not free. I mean, no, you're not free to go and someone got dinged for that. If you're going to North Korea, no, no, no. But like the point here is that what 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 you're saying to me is what is classified as a terrorist is a fairly subjective perspective because you know for one part of society, all you Republicans are terrorists now. So I, you know, there is a there's, there's a fine line between what constitutes a terrorist or not. You know, sure, but, I mean, but you're not going to get. But those those people who say that you know seventy four million Americans are terrorists, that, those folks, fortunately, they're <laughs> they're not in charge of the judiciary. They're just opinionated jerks on Twitter, and and I think they're probably a very small minority of opinionated jerks. Yeah, but that, they do influence cul- corporate corporate culture, and we're living in an environment where you get cultural audits, right? So a bank cannot be seen lending to someone that public opinion deems a terrorist. So then you get frozen out and deplatformed and unbanked. And I don't see how currently under the under the you know the way Bitcoin has evolved, it has actually been co-opted by the. I, that, that's my main criticism of Bitcoin is that I do not see how I I feel it has just adapted and evolved in line with the conventional system and is not really a challenger anymore. Maybe I mean I, I see it as a I see Bitcoin as basically a giant middle finger to people who would tell me where I can't spend my money. 
but uh, how, how, but tell me, but sorry, sorry to, to monopolize. I just really want to yeah. know how can you how can you maintain that liberty with Bitcoin in, in this in the current um, regulated space where Coinbase has to like deliver the names of anyone who you know the IRS wants or whatever you know police uh, summons them to do. Can I address this? Go ahead. I love this talk from Isabella. I love that you're like, you know, extremely thoughtful about Bitcoin. It's very refreshing, honestly. And I think you're right. I mean, when Bitcoiners, you know, insist that Bitcoin is fully surveillable and transparent, it's kind of a self-own. I mean, if you look at the facts, like, yeah, you know, like I, my firm does chain analysis. So I know how easy it is. You basically can infer with very limited effort the you know fraction of Bitcoin that's being used in darknet marketplaces and things like that. Chain analysis is the estimates and like it's in the sort of one to two percent a year of Bitcoin is used for illicit finance. But it's a it's a definitional question because any transactional activity the government doesn't like, they can call illicit. So in one sense Janet Yellen is is wrong on the facts. But in another very real sense she's right because she can just call everything to do with Bitcoin illicit if she wants. And people will listen to her. And FinCEN will listen to her. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we have to prepare for a world where Bitcoin is 100% considered illicit by the state and what the implications of that are. Uh, because we know that they're going to uh, return to this, this world where capital flows and the financial system is wholly politicized, 100% politicized. We're already there. We're already there. Operation Choke Point is being revived. You know, all capital is exposed to these you know, political tests. And so, yeah, the question is, can Bitcoin resist that? And I think ultimately, even as an intermediated asset, something that you might use via Coinbase or Gemini or Kraken or whatever, you still do have that ultimate discretion to take physical delivery of the asset. Right. But then what, when they when they start forcing you to, you know, Coinbase to screen all uh, incoming transactions into Coinbase from dark wallets, whatever they're called, then what? Because that's actually in the in the fiat space that, that they're obliged to not just know who, you know, you are on the on the receiver and uh, on the sender, but the sender of the sender. And, and so then what? Yeah. Because I, I don't see that actually I don't see that picture improving. One of the great ironies of Donald Trump being deplatformed from Facebook, I thought, was the fact that Facebook had just so recently tried to, you know, create Libra, which was supposed to be the technology that was going to solve the unbanking problem. So here they are, you know, that's that's the irony. They think they're like solving financial inclusion. At the same time, they're unbanking the president, potentially. Like, Yeah, I, I think a political change will have to occur where people become fed up with a small cartel of Silicon Valley oligarchs basically controlling uh, who can use the internet. But, you know, I, I think Bitcoin is, is a ray of light, you know, and it, it's a potentially way out of this. And yes, many people use Bitcoin in an intermediated fashion, but many people also use it directly. And... No, like no one is currently then, censoring are you Bitcoin. Saying the there's going to be a level. bifurcation of the market. So you will have obviously you've got BTC and BCH and all these others, but but there's also another schism within within Bitcoin, which is people who use it through through the regulated space and those who use it outside of the regulated space. And will the two actually be able to co co and you know interact with each other in, in, in the years to come? I think it's a question of state capacity. So if you're China, you can probably enforce, you know, very oppressive monetary uh, rules. You know, if they if they wanted to step it up, they could. 
in the US, there's ultimately constitutional constraints against, you know, seizing people's funds and expropriation. So at the end of the day, like the tools that the government would use to push through the complete politicization of capital, those are pretty extreme tools. And once you start to employ them, you reveal yourself as, as weak. So I think Bitcoin and the Bitcoiner you know, values will eventually prevail in the US. In certain authoritarian states, they won't. But that's you know just the way it goes. Is there a better Bitcoin? Because I think most people approach this topic from the point of view of you know is there is there a Bitcoin that that or a Bitcoin alternative that doesn't use as much energy, for example, or is a better payments mechanism, or whatever. But 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 we can also maybe ask it from from the vantage point that Isabella's asking, which is is there still one that protects? Is there still a cryptocurrency that protects privacy better than Bitcoin? And is that where it may actually be vulnerable, not through energy use, energy use or any other normal arguments that people raise. Yes, I mean, if you, the, the way to find this out is by reviewing court filings and seeing where the FBI uh, describes a, a seizure of a particular type of asset in a, in a certain, either in a search warrant or in an indictment or something like that. So we've seen indictments where they say, you know, we seized X number of Bitcoin, Y number of Ethereum and an unknown quantity of Monero. Um, so when they're saying that in a court filing, it means they really can't find it out because otherwise they'd, they'd have to say so. So I think there, there are some privacy-focused cryptocurrencies. They're having trouble getting those on exchanges uh, because of the KYC implications. So there is a bit of a sort of operation choke point style cutting off of those cryptocurrencies from the mainstream financial ecosystem. But I think what we're going to see is that people will find ways to get into those assets uh, by you know, going to some offshore exchange that doesn't have KYC, which is very, very bad that they don't do that. But you know, the fact is the utilities are there, offshore exchanges do this, and that's a way that people can take Bitcoin, you know, which is regulated and convert it into, uh, regulated and supervised into something which is uh, much more difficult to keep track of. And what about the, the, the other arguments about, you know, so, so I think we had a question earlier on about Cardano, right? Whether that might be, you know, better Bitcoin because it's proof of stake and therefore doesn't have such a large environmental footprint. Can I lean into the environmental question and yes. just pose the proposition that maybe it's not an issue because maybe, first of all, it's a question of relativity. Like I was like super critical about Bitcoin's energy footprint back in the day, but I, I have been thinking about it and I've decided that maybe it's a feature, not a bug, um, on the basis that actually this whole like ESG framing that we've got to like, you know, have the carbon, but the price of carbon like has to pop to, um, to, to effectively collapse to make us uh, substitute into other better systems. It's actually very wrong-headed because you actually want the price of carbon and oil to go up. At the moment, we're synthesizing the price of going up by making anyone who is a polluter have to also buy carbon offsets. But this isn't actually changing the underlying cost of the energy. The energy is separate and in, in it's not every single jurisdiction that has to subscribe to offsets. So on the black market, you can still buy cheap energy and that market will always exist. Whereas in Bitcoin, it's a much more pure, pure system that the energy is costly and therefore there is a better incentive to create technologies that um, create efficiencies around energy. And if we lose those incentives, 
um, maybe we end up like, you know, pushing technology in the wrong way. Um, certainly solar, wind, none of these new renewables that we're pushing ahead with are necessarily, they haven't solved the energy problem. In fact, in many ways, they consume more energy overall than, you know, that they have They have to consume their energy up front. So in the, in the short term, you're actually spending more carbon, not, not less. So I, I, I'm not convinced that the energy problem is, is a bad one. It might be a feature. And also, it brings to mind the sheer energy cost of the internet in general, because people don't, you know, people are worried about, you know, pollution and not using plastic bottles and all sorts of like uh, energy saving um, light bulbs, blah, blah, blah. But they don't think about the fact that their, you know, their selfies, their internet presence, all of this has a massive internet carbon footprint. In fact, I think the entire ICT sector is now, in terms of carbon emissions, contributing more than the airline sector. So, and it's growing much more quickly than airlines, especially post-pandemic. So by actually putting this into people's minds, you're putting pressure not just on Bitcoin, but also on Google and all the other sort of um, server-supported businesses that haven't solved these problems either. I think the reason actually that I mentioned earlier that that people should be really careful about investing into the latest altcoin is because you asked that question about Cardano, which has managed to somehow find its way into the top 10 cryptocurrencies the last couple of weeks. And I've seen perfectly reasonable people who have known for a really long time who happen to be early members of the Cardano community getting very, very excited about you know the, the increase in the coins uh, market capitalization from a relatively low amount to nearly you know flipping Ethereum. So flipping for those of you who are listening is Bitcoin ease for what happens when something becomes more valuable than something else. So in any event, the the, the, thing, the thing with Cardano is it's very much the same as everything that's come before, right? So proof of stake may be, quote unquote, more environmentally friendly. But if you dust that off and see what the claim means, it means that there's no actual work being put into securing the network. So from the standpoint of looking at this as a like global transactional system, I would look at that and say, all right, well, what function does proof of work serve? One, it ensures that you actually have some skin in the game so that when you're providing security to the network, there's something in the real world which limits your ability to go and fake your fake the consensus, right? Which is not the case of the proof of stake system, which is judged by the balance of coins in the wallet. So you could have someone sitting there in control of 80% of the coins and basically playing decentralization theater, uh, which is what a lot of these, these schemes do. The second one is that proof of work is a coin distribution mechanism which proof-of-stake coins also don't have. The only way you get into a proof-of-stake system is by purchasing it from somebody else. The way that you get into a proof-of-work system is by actually performing useful work, and then the coins get issued to you direct, which, from at least my standpoint, means that you are actually creating a valuable asset outside of the confines of the traditional financial system. The only thing, you know, they would have to cut you off at the ISP level in order to prevent you from mining Bitcoin Whereas it's very easy if, you, or if you're highly dependent on these staking systems, they just turn around and say, all right, well, you know what, this is, you know, we're going to deem this uh, unlawful money transmission, or we're going to turn around and apply some pressure on the exchanges, or we're going to call the staking mechanism an unregistered security, which is certainly something which is within the realm of possibility, at least in the United States. So, so that, you know, stuff like that, when, when we hear, oh, well, there's a new coin, it's in the top 10, it just appeared there. There are a lot of new people around, and they're not really doing particularly in-depth thinking about why things are the way they are, or they don't have the context of understanding you know, who's running them, how long they've been running them, 
what the history of these people are and, and uh, you know, where they come from and whether their ideas are new or not. And in the case of Cardinal, Charles Hoskinson, perfectly nice fellow, very intelligent guy. But, you know, I think with Cardinal, he's building, you know, 2015's tech today, which is a smart contract enabled blockchain that uses proof of stake. There are, you know, 15, 20 of those in, in the top 50, at least that, that you can point to. And I don't think there's anything particularly special about it. Preston is absolutely right. I mean, proof of work is the interesting thing here. That's what permits decentralized leaderless consensus to emerge between a set of mutually untrusting nodes where people that you know make transactions with that system trust that they're not going to be censored. And that's the purpose of Bitcoin is to make transactions that institutional power says you can't otherwise make. Proof of stake, people consider an alternative to proof of work, which is completely false. Proof of stake is just a fancy word for a consortium of entities that control the chain, right? Proof yeah, of stake I'm, I'm means- not a technical person, but intuitively, I've always felt that proof of stake seems just like a replication of, of the standing banking system. In that yeah, it's quite a game, right? Yeah, precisely. Yeah. So it's not a novel thing. People think they have this artificial progression in their mind where we had you know, the Federal Reserve and then we had proof of work. And now we have proof of stake, which is somehow even more decentralized and better for consensus. It's just not. Proof of stake just means a cartel chain. And we've seen these things fail. Like you just have to look at the example of EOS or Steemit. We have seen them get taken over by cartels. That is the guaranteed fate of any proof of stake chain because what happens is all the coins settle with the exchanges and then the exchanges make all the political decisions on behalf of the chain. So it's, it's the disconnect between reality and perceptions here is absolutely colossal. Does anybody want to make the case that there might be a better Bitcoin, even if it's in a hypothetical um, case? Or, 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 or do you think we, we, Bitcoin, for all of its, you know, all of its imperfections, is, is, is difficult to better? I was the biggest cr- critic of Bitcoin there was that you could have found out there right and i have uh, i've really stress tested on every single point that i've you know every single angle that i've analyzed and tried to critique it and my conclusion this year or last year was you know it's not perfect definitely not perfect but it's the best of the bunch and in an ugly contest it's you know it's the one that makes a lot of sense and and i as i always say my my criticism i don't actually you know i wouldn't claw back any of my criticism i think all the points i've always made have been valid um what i underestimated is that the conventional system i had more trust in the conventional system and i just thought it wasn't worth it i always likened bitcoin to a bit of a luxury product which is suitable for like paranoid people who want to overspend on security on effect- effectively payment security but that becomes worthwhile when you see that maybe they weren't so paranoid right and now now in hindsight because i think you know certain things that have happened in the last year have made me more skeptical about whether we we, you know, democracy is still functioning functioning on a on a accountability perspective. Like I'm worried about the authoritarian authoritarianism that has creeped in through pandemic measures and things like that. I think in that context, Bitcoin, you know, has. I'm glad some people speculated on it. I'm glad it's there. It's uh, the world is better off for it being there. Is my point. And is there a better Bitcoin? 
not one that's going to be able to overcome the first mover advantage that Bitcoin had. And I, I think it will be very hard to retrofit anything to something else. It's like the classical test for obscenity, right? You know, I, is there a better Bitcoin? I can't describe what that would look like, but I'm going to know it when I see it. Um, and right now, there isn't, right? Bitcoin is currently, in my opinion, the most effective at uh, achieving decentralization, as in that term's almost impossible to define. But whatever, however we define it, if it's to have any meaning, I think Bitcoin does it pretty well. It's the most effective at generating coins which are distributed not to early holders or to exchanges, but by people who actually go and install you know, some racks and put some mining hardware in and have some skin in the game, which is an important element of decentralization. It's distributing coins. And whatever is better than that will be better at getting coins into people's hands outside of the context of regulated exchanges, right? And it will do everything Bitcoin does, but it'll do it a little bit better. And I call that, I call it alien proof of work because it doesn't exist yet. Or at least you know, if it does exist, we don't know about it. And maybe that's maybe that's coming next year. Maybe you know when it, it's invented, maybe it'll be adopted by Bitcoin and they'll just port the UTO XO set over to it. So we don't know what's gonna happen on that front. But but for now I think Bitcoin's uh, the, the big bad boy on the block. If you could invent a proof of work where there weren't economies of scale, basically, and everyone could participate in consensus and it wasn't possible to find optimizations such that, you know, there were large pools of of hash power that developed, that would be better. But yeah, there's unique circumstances of Bitcoin's birth that simply cannot be replicated today. Uh, and I can go into detail, but that'd be kind of a longer conversation. But yeah, suffice to say, you couldn't possibly launch Bitcoin again today. So we're out of time. And I think anyway, that's a good point to leave us at. And um, I'm not going to attempt to s- summarize the whole discussion because it would, it would be impossible. And, you know, even, even if I could, it would be, you know, even if we had enough time, it would be impossible. But basically, I think we sort of said that there is a strong investment case for Bitcoin. It's probably possibly in a bubble, but not if it is, if it's not in a very big one, it's ready for the mainstream and it's, there isn't a better Bitcoin. And so with that, I'd just like to thank our four panelists. Thanks again for everybody who listened in. The next one is, our next 4 by 4 is on the environment. So Isabella, we might be coming to you to, to ask you back every <laughs> big game. So thanks again to everybody. Thank thanks you. very much. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time. <laughs>